Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fish and Game Podcast. You got your host here. Justin Townsend and crew today. So we're going to do a bit of a crew chat here. Uh, I, I will be perfectly honest that we had some connectivity issues last time. And so this is a redo, a part two, but we took a little direction, a little different direction with it this time than we did last time. So really the, the focus of the show, um, we're going to kind of talk a little bit about the unspoken rules of wild game. Not just wild game, wild food too. We'll expand it a little bit. And uh, I'll get in a little bit as to the motivation and origin of this conversation in just a minute. Uh, because that that motivation rests on the shoulders of Adam Berkelman's uh, based on, on his group that he has called the Intrepid Eaters Unite. And we'll talk a little bit more about that too. But first, I want to go around the room, share some news updates, go over some stuff going on that we have in in our world, and then we'll dive deep into two things, conservation and food, uh, two of my favorite topics. So uh, let's do that. So for me, updates, um, goodness, since the last podcast, well, there's a little bit of a delay on our podcast, so you're getting... Unfortunately, not timely as timely information as we'd like. We're a couple weeks uh, behind, but um, we released our summer magazine, which is uh, pretty phenomenal. If you haven't seen it yet, you should go look at it because it's beautifully laid out. We brought in our awesome designer uh, Seth, who 
has created a masterpiece of a wild food magazine. I would I would arguably say, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong on this, I'm just going to go ahead and tout this as like the leading wild food magazine in the industry because I don't know of another like wild food focused magazine. You guys, anyone come to mind? Not not specifically. I think it's I think you're right about that. Yeah, I think it's the best one that is focused on the food aspect. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that uh, yeah, now. yeah, got you. Okay. It's the best one that's focused primarily on the food aspect rather than like, oh, we're a hunting magazine, also here's some recipes. We're more like, here's some recipes of wild food. Oh, and here are some hunting and conservation things as well. And fishing. And fishing too. And foraging. And foraging too. All all the things. <laughs> um no, no, no. I, I really like it. it. It's great. You should go check it out. Actually, both Adam Berkelmans and Colin have pieces in there. They're on tonight. Maybe they'll share a little bit about what their pieces are. Um, I will tell you that mine is focused on the photo essay, which is a lot of fish photography from my time down in the Florida Keys and really like walks you through the summer season of, of fishing down there. And then I also... Um, wrote an awesome recipe uh, inspired by our wild pig camp down in Texas that's a whole smoked wild pork shoulder, which is phenomenal. Uh, A lot of folks, there's a lot of conversation about whether you can or can't smoke wild game. I can tell you, folks on this podcast can tell you that it is doable. It's delicate, but doable, I would say. Um, So we've done that. But... um, yeah, let's see. Uh, outside of that, been doing a lot of fishing, and tonight I used our wild fish blend, which is our special spice blend that we selected for all types of fish, ranging from trout, catfish, salmon, shark, snapper, grouper, mahi, uh, pretty much anything you can think of. It's great. Shrimp, crab, whatever, lobster, all good on it. It's perfect all-around wild fish blend. Really, really flavorful. Really delicious. Not salty like a lot of the other fish blends are. Um, so I really enjoyed it. I used it on catfish tonight. I made blackened catfish with some uh, summer squash out of the garden and some seasoned rice uh, for the family before I came down to record podcast. So pretty excited. It's a good blend. You can get it uh, get it on the website over at harvestingnature.com. Same place you can get the magazine too. And then also as well, uh, we're going to be offering up like this three-pack uh, we haven't quite decided on the offering of it yet, but there'll be some sort of discount associated if you buy uh, all three blends or you buy three bottles of spice. But our spice blends, I think, are pretty moderately priced. They're about uh, eight ounces of spice. So that's about, um, if you're talking in spice weight, that's about the size of a uh, beer can, maybe a little bigger, uh, chocked full of delicious flavor. So, and as a reminder, if you've got a big game, we got our upland fowl, and we've got our wild fish. And then soon, we're in testing phase here. We're in testing phase of small game and waterfowl. So those will be coming out this fall. But I'll stop talking about what I'm doing, and I'll let you hear from the folks here on the podcast with me. So I'll go over to Colin first. Colin, what you got going on in your neck of the woods? Hey, everybody. This is Colin. A um, couple things to update you all on. They got about one month till elk season, less than one month till elk season now that it's August. 
Um, so just coming up in a few weeks. Got a, I've had trail cams out there for a few months. Got a pretty good lay of the land pattern of life of the elk out there. Um, it's it's really cool to see how their behavior changes as the summer goes. So when I first put my cams out there, and maybe it was just dumb luck, but uh, I was getting elk every day, like herds of elk, bulls of elk, bachelor herds, everything. Um, but lately, I don't know if it's because they know the hunting season's coming up or the temperature's rising, uh, but I'm getting less and less. So it's kind of interesting to see how their behavior changes um, as the as the season goes on. Nevertheless, I think it's a pretty good lay of the land. Dr. Ben and I, our editor, are, uh, he's coming up here for opening weekend and uh, provided the fires don't uh, aren't too dangerous and it's not too dry out here. They just closed one of the sections of Oregon, but uh, my section is still open. So provided those are still open, uh, we're going to be out there opening weekend going after some elk. And uh, as he says, we're going to get both tags the first day, opening day. So we'll see what happens. Nope. Nope. Yeah, well, now that now I think you're going to have to hike 25 miles with Ben. See, that's the thing. You guys don't know how good it out is out here in Oregon. Actually, no, you're right. Yeah, it's super hard out here in Oregon. Nobody should come here to hunt. Um, go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave it at that. Um, speaking of my article in the magazine, I wrote an article about conservation in bird species, uh, a failure of conservation, a success of conservation, and a hopeful for conservation. Um, so you can read the article and figure out which species I'm talking about. Uh, but an interesting note, people listen to, I'll, I'll plug the, the Mediator podcast for a second here, not just for a, a short second. They recently had Chris Parrish of the Peregrine Fund on, which we also had Chris Parrish and Leela Brown of the North American Non-Lead Partnership a few episodes ago. Uh, and they were all talking about non-lead, the non-lead movement. And um, it's pretty interesting. I would recommend going over there to listen to hear what Chris has to say. Also, make sure you go back and listen to our episode to hear what Chris and Leland have to say. Um, I think it's a good movement. They're not trying to force anybody's hand into doing anything. It's more about education, but go check it out. Uh, on that note. Oh, also, too, that's. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we're a supporting. I think you're probably going to say. We're a supporting partner of the North American Donlet Partnership. So if you go over to their website and you go to their partners, we're involved with them. Um, so that's really cool. We're hoping to get more involved with them as we go along with our hunting camps and stuff like that. But uh, it's, it's nice to be a part of that movement because there's actually a great quote. And if I, if you don't mind me reading this quote from the uh, podcast that Chris Parrish just did, he said, if we as hunters who believe we are leading the way in conservation, if we're not out there in the front talking about it, then it will go by the wayside of those groups who have the loudest voice. And I think that was really important because, yeah, people have been using lead ammunition for a long time. Now there's new science, new studies out there that lead ammunition is generally bad for the environment. Maybe doesn't, it's inconclusive whether it's bad to humans or not because you can get lead from, I mean, if you have an old house, you can get lead from paint with the pipes. Um, but it's good to educate that. But as hunters, we, we always say like, oh, hunters lead the way in conservation. Um, but I think what he's trying to say is put your money where your mouth is and be a leader in conservation and speak out about it rather than just saying, oh, well, I buy my tags every year and that goes towards conservation and that's all I need to do. Uh, 
regardless, very interesting episode that they had. Uh, really good episode that we had with them as well. Give both a listen. Highly recommend it. Uh, the last thing I have to say is that I tried out a whole goose slow-cooked recipe. The last couple, couple episodes ago, I was talking about cooking goose with a lot of mustard to cut down that marshy, swampy flavor that we get out here on the coast. Um, it turned out terrible, and it, I, I had gagged a little bit when I opened up the, uh, the crock pot. And, uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to laugh. No, no, it's totally fine. Uh, I won't be doing that one again. Um, uh, I'm still looking for, for tips and uh, inspiration. So both Adams, if you have anything, Justin, as well, uh, I'm open to it. But uh, no, it wasn't good. So that flushed that one down the drain. Not literally, but <laughs> uh, yeah, wasn't great. So that. So what? What did you do with it after? What did you do with it after? Do, do you want me to be really honest? I threw it in the trash. It was so bad. Um, I I took a little <laughs> piece. Okay. I took a little piece of goose leg, and I had a spit. It was so bad. I don't know what happened to it. Whether it was like because I used some venison stock with it to keep the moisture up. Um, I basically just doused the thing in Dijon mustard, and not like doused, like completely dredged, but like enough to make a nice rub on the outside. It already I was already dry rubbing it with um, like some salt and pepper. Uh, I think oregano in the fridge for about a day before I did that. So I thought it was going to be nice and tender, have good flavor coming out. I don't know, something with the mustard in the slow cooker. I think what I need to do is do it normally with salt and pepper and the stock and then add the mustard afterwards. And I think that would change it. So here's here's my thoughts on it because what's what's containing a lot of that probably swampy flavor and it's pretty common in waterfowl is uh, is the fat. Yeah. So, and, and you, so you need to find a method where it's not like sitting in that fat where the fat's allowing to like come off. I thought about that too. And because I did a whole bird with the skin still on, which, I mean, they're kind of lean out here. They're not, they're not super fatty. Um, cause it doesn't really get that cold out here. So I thought about that too. After I already put it in the crock pot, I was like, oh man, there's still quite a bit of fat on there. So... <laughs> I wonder how that's going to affect it. Um, yeah, learns. Um, I honor, honor that goose. That and, and weren't you saying something about how most of your birds out there are going to be getting into some of those aquatic invertebrates? Absolutely. They're getting into like the small shellfish, small crustaceans, um, the the brackish water, the, the sea seagrasses um yeah they have a distinct salty brackish marshy flavor uh they like your typical midwest corn-fed ducks gotcha so have you tried um a lot of a lot of that is going to be that leftover myosin and water which will carry over that irony flavor so we typically recommend just on any bird in general, breast up when you're storing them. And uh, did you age it at all by chance? Uh, no, like in the fridge or anything? No, I didn't. Yeah, okay. Um, those are two things that could help. And then as far as getting, if you just let that leach out and, and breast up, it'll all that will kind of gravity will take it down into the back. 
Um, and a lot of it will drain out in that alley. And then, like, a light salinity brine can actually pull out a little bit of the rest without okay. affecting the meat too much for a short amount of time. That has helped start some of that transition from a diver duck to a tasty Midwest corn-fed duck. Um, and then a couple of recipes I found that work pretty well. Anything curry, spicy, chili, Indian, vindaloo, you know, things like that. Um, pepperoni, if you're going to do any sausages, andouille works pretty well. Anything like really heavily seasoned like that can kind of, can all work if all the kind of factors come together that's what i found but man it, it, it's a tough thing yeah. to eat. like you said when you open the crock pot and that marshy wet dog low tide smell hits you yeah it's not that appetizing <laughs> it's nice that you mentioned like the curries and the uh like the heavy spice stuff because the one of the two best recipes i've managed to conquer are uh I think I used a pintail, but it was tikka masala. And man, that stuff was good with the duck in there because the rest of the curry and the tikka masala, the garam masala spices completely took away mm. any of the like the marshiness and you were left with like that rich duck flavor. Um, so yeah, the, I I know that one is good. I'm trying to find some other ones so I'm not just eating duck tikka masala all season long. <laughs> but <laughs> what what I was thinking is yeah. like look look some at like the Cajun Creole recipes too because you're gonna get a lot of spices in there, but also too like think think through that environment as well as like kind of being marshy and as that Cajun Creole uh, yeah. food has evolved like it's it's very well adapted to to that environment, and I think too like a gumbo. You could probably do a really good gumbo because you have so yeah. many flavor profiles inside the gumbo that's going to cut down on that. I've definitely had some gumbos that i pretty sure there were things in there that I've never eaten before and might not have a chance to eat again. But, yeah, they all it's all every gumbo I've had has been delicious. So, yeah, that's one you almost can't go wrong with. Yeah, I think the um, what like my recommendation would be kind of along the same lines is is um, like what you're doing is trying to combat all those flavors, but uh, since the the geese and ducks are eating so many um, aquatic creatures, maybe try paralleling the flavors with like Vietnamese uh, Vietnamese okay. direction. So using like uh, fish sauce and soy and those types of things might actually yeah. parallel those flavors and mask the bad flavors, just accentuating the good flavors. Um, so exploring some, like, Thai or Vietnamese flavors might actually... And they're usually heavy, heavily spiced as well. So, right yeah, on. Indian, Thai, Cajun, Vietnamese, like, those are all the ways to go with something like that. Oh, you know what else, too? I just had another. I just had another thought was, like, a paella. Like an Oregon paella. Because you guys have so many different types. Yeah, I mean, goose, duck, nutria, whatever. Whatever you want to toss in there, <laughs> toss it in there. Um, okay, so let's let's go over to Adam Berkman's. What do you got for updates? 
Well, I'm up in Ontario, so it's uh, summertime. It's been really, really hot. I've been doing a lot of fishing, um, a lot of bass fishing, and pike and, and bluegill as well. So we've been eating tons of fish. And uh, chanterelles, I've been out foraging a lot, and the chanterelles have just been exploding this year. And I think that's happening all over the continent. Like, people everywhere are just sit, like, shocked by how many chanterelles there are. And I've, I've harvested, like... I don't know, a dozen pounds already, no problem. It's just been crazy, a crazy year for them. So I've been having tons of fun doing that. In the last couple of days, I've been picking up these um, old man of the woods mushrooms. So I'll show you guys, but you can't see on, on uh, obviously, if you're listening, but they're like this kind of shaggy uh, black and white and gray mushroom that's kind of scaly. Huh. And um, they look like an old man a little bit. And uh, they're not known as a choice mushroom, but whenever someone tells me that something doesn't taste that good, then I make it my business to make it taste good. So I've been experimenting with those the last couple of days, which has been a lot of fun. And uh, I've been coming up with some tasty stuff. So so keep an eye open on the Intrepid Eater page, and you might see some recipes for those guys. Um, I'll be pulling out my crossbow soon to start target practice for, for the fall. I just drew a doe tag, which is pretty rare in my region, so I'm very happy about that. And... Um, other than that, I've been plugging away at the Antler and Finn podcast. Um, this this podcast will be a little ahead, but the last one I did was uh, one of Justin's recipes, which was a deer and beer pie, which uh, is a delicious recipe. Uh, so make sure you check I, I liked, that out. I liked your rendition of and, that. Uh, it was really good. Yeah. So I kind of go into like the... The history behind meat pies in, in England and around the world, and the you know, and I kind of dig in to some interesting aspects of the recipe before I actually go into verbally describing the recipe. So, even if you're not looking to looking for an audible recipe, the first the preamble is super interesting. I think so. So it's worth checking out even just for that. Um, yeah, and I've been just. Kind of cooking away. I've been making some bass recipes. Um, actually contributed a bass recipe to the magazine. Uh, the summary issue of the magazine is a bass salad stuffed in a tomato, which is a really easy um, recipe that looks incredible. So if you're looking to, to show off a little bit or to impress someone, I think that's a really good one. It's really light and tasty and healthy and looks awesome. Um, other than that, I've been just uh, just enjoying the summer. Just camping and canoeing and swimming and training my training my puppy and yeah having a great time. Nice, nice. It's awesome. All right, over to uh, Adam Steele. You want to give us some uh, some updates, buddy? We haven't maybe we haven't had you on. I don't think I've I haven't seen you since Rendezvous. Yeah, uh, Rendezvous is a good time. Uh, came right back home to work for a little bit and then. Kind of hanging out um, off season down here for me as a processor, um, mainly doing domestic animals during the summertime, chickens, pigs, goats, like that for people. Um, alligator season, deer season started last Saturday in South Florida. Alligator season starts in two weeks, so my zone archery season starts in about 40 days. Um, the weather's really kind of starting to feel like those early hunt evenings, you know, I can really, really sense it. So you can, you can kind of, you know, people 
that aren't that kind of in tune with stuff often wonder how do animals know when did you know this and that and it's it's and it's it's evident here with the plants that are blooming the food sources that are available and just the the di different color of light when the sun goes down um slight temperature changes uh like it really feels like fall coming on so my instincts are kicking in and i'm getting ready for another long processing season and uh try to figure out how to use my computer i finally got one with a functioning period <laughs> button and shift key so i can hopefully start writing some more recipes down and getting that dialed in and uh going back uh to the non-lead partnership thing i got a jar sitting uh in my shop down there of all the different little pieces of non-lead projectiles that i've taken out of out of animals and uh it's just wait is it not is it non-lead or lead oh yeah uh, yes lead i guess so i got a a jar down okay. there in the shop of of lead and other projectiles that have come out of carcasses and just seeing the effects and some of the meat loss um i can definitely you know attest to the quality consistency and cleanliness of the non-lead ammunition um in my line of work so i just wanted to go back to what Colin had said earlier on that. Um. I think, I think like one of the things that opened my eyes on like the, the lead use is, and this has only been very recently that I even kind of looked into it and started thinking of it, is the x-rays of like, if you go on and you look up lead ammo x-rays on Google or whatever, and you like click around and search, like you see some, some wild pictures and you'll see like a deer was shot you know, in the vitals, in that zone, but lead has projected itself all the way through the back strap. And I'm just like, it blows my mind. And I'm sure, uh, Adam, you've probably seen it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it gets... The end result, the quality food you're going to put on the plate definitely goes back all the way to not only shot placement, you know, and being prepared for that, being calm and in that moment, but, you know, really using the proper projectile when you're trying to take game. So that's something I definitely feel yeah. feel very strongly about. So we shoot a lot of waterfowl down here. Um, and, you know, we try to use non-lead ammunition for all of our snipe hunting even though it's not required um moorhead rail all that kind of stuff it's not required here but it you know if we can get it it's nice to have and um hopefully those alternatives will start coming down to match the price as the demand goes up yeah i hope so other than that we're getting a new puppy on sunday Ooh, a new puppy what kind Yes, uh, small Moonsterlander, just like the other Adam. Yeah, you guys are twinsies now for sure. Yeah, Moonsterlander Adams. <laughs> Sounds like a rock band. <laughs> yeah. So that's exciting. That's it was kind of unexpected, but uh, 
Yeah, unexpected, but it's happening, and pretty excited about that. And my goose story is not as straightforward as Collins, but we have a good goose story from last week. Uh, also, <laughs> that was a d domestic goose that someone brought that they thought. He told me, it's like, he's only been dead a half hour. And, uh, well, it turns out that wasn't the case, so... E. Yeah, but that's that's just e. a day in the life down here e. in 95 degree, 98 percent humidity, Florida. It has, it was dead for more than a half hour and oh yeah, it, spoiled. Oh no, 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 no! As it was, it was still alive. Oh. <laughs> I took that the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> Plot twist. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, I was like, it's been dead for like three days. No, no, no. He's like, it. Like I was there. It okay. was just killed. Right. Brought it to me, and he's and he's unzipped the bag and. The goose flies out. Yeah, well, let's just say the goose is most definitely alive. But no, we got that taken care of quickly. <laughs> I picture him like opening the bag and the goose flying out and you like chasing it with a butcher cleaver behind it, like running across your driveway. Like that's what I pictured. No, no. We uh, pissed it, exsanguinated it, and got it chilled and processed in a rapid manner. But yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's Fresh meat. definitely some, some, yeah, this guy, it's, a, it's just always some interesting stories with him. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Well, let's let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about so a little bit about conservation news, and this may come in delay, so there might be some updates uh, uh, to this. But I want to talk a little bit about the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. So basically, there were there are three senators co-sponsoring it as of right now. Senators from Oregon, which is Collins' mm -hmm. neck of the woods. A senator from, or sorry, a senator from Oregon, a senator from Colorado, which is my neck of the woods, and a senator from Minnesota, which is nobody here's neck of the woods, but still really. So I took a little quote. Um, so I popped over to the the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers website, and I read their like their stance on it, and and I thought it was really cool. Um, it really plays a lot. So it plays into the voluntary cooperation of redeveloping grasslands in North America. Am I summarizing that right, Colin? 
Yeah, that sounds uh, like the overall gist of it. Yeah, and it's modeled very closely after the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, which was passed in 1989. But here's the here's the the summary. So I pulled the one from the the Colorado Colorado Senator um, Senator Michael Bennett or Bennett. I'm not sure. And he says, many rural communities across Colorado and the American West rely on our imperiled grassland ecosystems for working agriculture lands and the outdoor economy. But intense wildfires and extreme drought fueled by climate change have put our grasslands at risk. The North American Grasslands Conservation Act would ensure that Colorado has the resources to work collaboratively with farmers, ranchers, landowners, and tribes to voluntarily restore our native grasslands, improve wildlife habitat, protect our watersheds, and confront the climate crisis. So in in a short summary, like... It would authorize the investment of $290 million annually in grants to incentivize the the voluntary conservation of grasslands, sagebrush steppe, and uh, which are two of the most threatened ecosystems in North America. So there's that little tidbit. But I don't know, Colin, do you have any other highlights that I missed from it? Um, No, not really. Not anything you already touched on. Uh, I think it's... It's important. It's another step in conserving the wild lands in the United States and North America. Um, you know, it's just another it's another piece of the puzzle. You know, wetland conservation. You have Endangered Species Act. You have uh, now the North American Grassland Conservation Act. Um, so it's just it's just another piece of that puzzle to create overall conservation. So yeah, I think it's a good step forward. Yeah. I think it, it's really cool, and I, I like the voluntary aspect of it. Like, it's not focused on federal land solely. It's it's really like, hey, how do we get folks involved? And you know, we have the money to get them involved, so let's get them involved. But uh, I would say reach reach out to your senators and uh, uh, tell them you're interested in showing support. If you should be, read more about it. Um, I'll apologize to Adam Berkelman's because when I was reading it, I realized like. It is the North American Grassland Conservation Act, but it is a U.S. bill, not really focused on Canada, but we do just grab that North American yeah, Canada catch up in it. So typical <laughs> Americans, jeez. Paving the way So yeah, going through that. No, really important. <laughs> so let's uh. Oh, let's 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 walk back over to the food realm here real quick and I'll I'll tell you an origin story of of our conversation tonight the main body of the show and then I'm going to have Adam Berkelman talk a little bit about the article that he shared so um over on his Intrepid Eaters Unite page Adam shared an article titled Introducing Food Grammar the unspoken rules of every cuisine and it touches very internationally on like some some things not to do uh if you're in other countries or things that are common maybe here in the states with our cuisine but if you paralleled it in another location the origin of it it may or may not be acceptable to uh societal judgment um 
So I'll kick it over to Adam Berkelman if you want to give us a couple highlights from that article to get us going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of the article went through some of the different kind of unwritten rules in, of cuisine that you might encounter in you know at home or, or elsewhere, and uh, a few of them were like like no cheese on on fish, which some of the world sticks to very strictly, and other in other places like don't at all. Tuna melts included. Um, in Italy, it's actually very full pas to eat meat on or with pasta. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Uh, America often doesn't follow these rules, and 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 uh, I don't think that's a bad thing because tuna melts are, are awesome. So if you stick to these rules rigidly and you never have a tuna melt, tuna melts are yeah, right. It's it's kind of a, a. I had one the other day. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah another one is no meat on pasta or with pasta in italy which is crazy to like our side of the pond where you know spaghetti meatballs is just uh, an everyday dish um you actually be probably hard pressed to find pasta without meat often um in the usa and canada and, and western europe we tend to eat uh dessert after a meal but in a lot of parts of asia there's no traditional or, or formal dessert, but you would eat sweets along with the meal, which is completely different and just seems odd to us. And those two cultures, you know, have, there's a little tension there where it seems weird what they're doing and seems weird, like what we're doing to them. Um, so other things like, uh, it's, it's starting to change a little bit, but right now bugs aren't food to us. Like to most people in, in Europe and in North America, or sorry, Canada and the U.S., bugs aren't food, but you go down to Mexico and Oaxaca, I was down there uh, a couple years ago, and I was eating fried grasshoppers, and they were awesome. Uh, I was in Africa, and I was eating mapani worms, and they're just a normal thing to eat, and they're, they're pretty good, too. So uh, bugs are food elsewhere, um, but most people in this, in here would think, no, that's not food. That's an unwritten rule about cuisine. You don't eat bugs. <laughs> so breaking those rules can really upset some people. And can get people people's backs up when when you're challenging their cuisine. But uh, on the same hand, like the tuna melt thing, sometimes breaking those rules leads to delicious results. So that was kind of the the gist of the article, and uh, I really liked it. So I posted it for to for everyone else to see, and Justin picked up on it there. Um, so I'll pass it back to you. So I I will say that the I, I thought about it too, and I was like. If, if all these other world cuisines have these unspoken rules, and American cuisine does as well, right? We, we have our unspoken rules um, for it. You know, one that comes to mind is like a whole complete dish is a meat, a starch, and a vegetable, and a sauce usually. But if you pull one of those elements out, like, all right, so say I want to be uh, on, you know, the, the protein diet or whatever, like I'm going to pull or no carbs, no carbs, low carbs, right? So I'm going to pull the starch out of it, and I'm only going to eat meat and sauce and vegetables. Well, that makes people uncomfortable because some people are like, i got to have my potatoes, i got to have my rice, i got to have my pasta, i got to have all these things. But I, I really wanted to think, like, what are the unspoken rules of wild game? And I, I, I want us to think about it through this. And I'll warn you, I'll warn you listeners out there, that this is gonna, we're going to challenge some things here. We're going to discuss some things we're not calling you out on what you do. We just want to chat through them so you understand a perspective. So 
If you get un- uncomfortable and fidgety in your seat, we'll never know. But keep listening. It will likely result in something great, grand, and wonderful. But I want us to think about it, and we'll go through it this way. What are some uh, absolute rules of wild game that we think that really no one breaks? And I, I pulled up two articles, which I think really kind of kind of go into it really well. Uh, one one is uh, in Outdoor Life on their website, and the other one was posted uh, on Onyx's website uh, by uh, one of our friends, Wade Trong, over at uh, Elevated Wild. And so th- those are great, great articles, great baselines when you start thinking, right? So what are some things that people do? What are our thoughts on other types of wild game grammar that really wasn't addressed there? And then maybe some personal. And then what are some rules or grammar that we think should be more widely adopted as a wild food culture, right? What's something um, something that we should promote and profess and use regularly? So think about that as we have this conversation because really those are the things that I want to hit. So I'll lead it. We'll go kind of around the room style and everybody kind of like pass one for the sake of time. Then we'll, we'll move on. But I, I was looking at the article outdoor life, uh, in outdoor life on their website. And it's called the seven golden rules of wild game care from field to freezer. And even before I took a look at this article, I had written out, um, six of my own points that I thought were really valuable in like my wild food grammar. And the number one I wrote, and these guys can uh, attest to it because they've seen my show notes, is that it's gamey. Like, I think that falls under the line of more of a myth, but I also think it's like, that's usually the first rule that people think of of wild game of like it's gamey flavored it's it's marshy or it's bloody or it's this and everything just gets categorized under that term gamey and we've talked a lot about on it i hate that word because it's it just doesn't fit it we've talked about how field care affects it how storage how meat care how preparation all these things affect it I mean, we even went to it tonight. Like, Colin, if you served that goose dish at a party, someone would be like, this shit's gamey. Like, undoubtedly. And they would just be like, oh. Oh, no, that 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 wasn't gamey. That was... <laughs> that wasn't gamey. That was just bad. Um, <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll go first, since I'm already talking. I'll go first to expand upon your... Wait, wait, hold on. I'm not, uh, I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm not done. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, I have a thought. <laughs> And this is from uh, from the conversation. So in the Onyx article too, I really like the way that uh, Wade phrased it. And he said, I think the top myth would be that wild game is gamey. It's one of those words that gets used to describe any meat that isn't mild in flavor. Wild meat almost always has more flavor than farmed meats. And I think the quote that stands out is like, we are so used to super mild grain fed protein that anything that has a depth of flavor is regarded as gamey. And, and, and that's like taking that bueno. one step further so that I just, all right. Uh, in the wine world, they call that terroir. Ooh. 
it tastes like where it came from. Yeah. And it, it should taste like where it came from. And you should be aware of where it came from and why it tastes like what it tastes like. So you can treat it the way it should be treated with the appropriate technique and agree- ingredients. All right. Colin, please continue. Sorry. No, I'm good. I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, yeah, I think gamey for me has always meant that it tastes different. Like elk and deer certainly taste different than beef. In fact, I mean, I've the, one of the best things I've done in the past couple of years is I haven't bought red meat from the store since last October when I got my elk, my first elk, my first deer. I haven't bought any any beef, uh, any red meat. I've got chicken and stuff, but I'm not I'm not like swimming in a slew of pheasants or anything grouse over here. Um, but I was fortunate enough to harvest a deer and an elk, so I was pretty much good for the entire year. Um, but on that note, I think the the gaminess and like the gamey description goes back to oh, it just tastes different or like. I mean, it's it's the natural flavor that you're looking for. Like, sure, you can maybe get some funky cuts or whatever. Like, I had a cut that had uh, a whole bunch. I think I posted about it. It had a whole bunch of uh, collagen inside of it. I don't know if it was scar tissue or something, but slow cooked the roast, opened it up, and there was at least a half-inch layer of collagen inside the roast. Um, it was nasty. Like, it was sticky. As soon as it got in your hands, it, like, it was impossible to get off. I think there's still some on my cutting board, even after months of trying to scrub it off. Hmm. Um, it was weird. It was different. Um, but it was collagen. And I don't know. Maybe that's part of the gaminess. It doesn't really add any flavor, but it's just something that's different than what you would normally expect in, like, a well-marbled piece of beef ribeye or something like that. Um so yeah, I mean, I kind of went on a tangent, but like going back to the gaminess, I think gaminess is really just a descriptor for different or, um, I mean, even like natural flavor, like talking about the goose and stuff. I've had goose that I haven't completely messed up in the crock pot, and it was definitely very rich, definitely very flavorful. It's just flavorful from the area that it came from, which is brackish water and coastal, coastal swampland, basically. So gamey, you I mean call call it gamey if you want, but it's it tastes like where it's coming from, just like Adam was saying with the wine. It tastes like where it's coming from. Beef, if you're getting grain fed or even grass fed beef, I mean that's one flavor profile you're getting throughout the entire meat. If you're eating a deer or an elk, you're getting everything that they're able to eat in that, that landscape. Whether it's mushrooms, whether it's grasses, or small shrubs and bushes, and they're getting everything. So I don't, yeah, I agree with the game. I mean, this is an excuse for, oh, I don't like this flavor, or I'm not used to this flavor because I've been eating beef and pork and chicken my entire life, and now I'm eating a wild Canada goose on the West Coast, and suddenly it's like this flavor shock that I'm not used to. All right, let's go to Adam Berkelman's. Well, uh, I can <laughs> expound on that a little bit with the like uh, another rule. Another rule, like considering that game in this, is that people tend to approach wild game by or wild game cooking by covering up the flavor of the wild game in any way possible. Whether that's through bacon, which we can 
touch on there or cream of mushroom soup or Italian dressing or, or fish crisp or something. It's, it's more about covering the flavor of wild game and trying to make it taste like more like uh, domestic animals rather than accentuating the flavors. I'm not talking about marshy geese here, but like, you know, a nice, a nice whitetail or something or an elk, like accentuating those flavors and celebrating them. Um, I think a lot of that comes, goes way back to the past where, where the kind of the pioneers um, in, in North America uh, living in the bush um, that kind of bush meat was, was poor people food and rich people could afford pork and beef and chicken. And you did anything you could to make, you know, as like a, as a housewife or something, you would make, do anything you could to make your wild game taste more like that rich people's food. Um, I heard a funny thing where um, they called it bush sugar, but it was maple, maple sugar, basically Uh, using that instead of white sugar, you felt like, like you were just a poor, awful, low class kind of person using bush sugar. And nowadays, how much does a bag of maple sugar cost <laughs> compared to white sugar, which is like basically free? Um, excuse me, the things have really changed. Uh, but I think that's still kind of in, in the North American psyche is to cover up the taste of that game. Yep, Adam nailed it right there. I know you and I. Before, I've had the conversation after the last hunt camp in the hotel room about how the different oils based on latitude and religion, like olive oil versus dairy, and that goes back to cheese yeah. and fish, you know? Why does a certain region use it, use it versus why does another region not? And I think you nailed it when you said poverty and wild game it was so so associated with yeah, so i think um you and i adam on the way back to the last hunt camp before we flew out had the conversation and you know culinary anthropology why do certain cultures use olive oil versus dairy and fat you know and and it was a, v- a very big cultural rift in those areas and so that probably led or did lead to, you know, oh, you don't put cheese with fish, whereas you get to America and we have things like the food pyramid where we're kind of, you know, as a youngster growing up told exactly how many, how much quantity are, we're told the quantity of what we need based on, you know, what the the structure has you know and that's kind of how food should be but it, it never before in history had we had so much you know it, it came down to grain and dairy and and meat you need so much of this and that but poverty had a lot to do with that too that gamey flavor you know used to be something of nobility you know and then it went to uh in America, North America, in the early to mid-20th century, kind of went to being associated with people that didn't have those industrial products of mass farm-raised meat that had that homogenous flavor. So um, it's very much a 
terroir thing. You know, if there's a, a word for food and protein that's the equivalent in the wine world that is terroir, it would be gamey. So gamey shouldn't be a bad word. It should be a good word. It should be looked at as something that's prized and something that is rare and something that you worked for and something that's unique to its region. And that's, I think, it's just a, a wave that goes, you know, in another 40 or 50 years, maybe it'll be seen as something that's trivial again. But hopefully through good recipes, good stories and history, it, it's always going to remain. I think it will. I do like that terroir that that term um just the terroir is a french term used to describe environmental factors that affect a crop's phenotype including unique environment contexts farming practices etc so uh and those crop specific that is that is gamey i mean that is the definition if, if you wanted to have a word for protein in the wild it's gamey and i think it was because of of social class and and economics that gamey got associated with you know just not having some kind of fancy homogenous it became mm-hmm. a homogenous flavor you know something shifted in in society and it was industrial revolution world war 2 that kind of going through the Great Depression in the United States, and then we finally, you know, icebox in every house, and it's a huge cultural shift like no other in history. And it's been crazy. You know, now we're, we just went through what I consider the, the golden age of having these ingredients available on Amazon to be shipped overnight. You can get them anywhere. It was, they were readily available at our fingertips, and now we're running into issues with this mm-hmm. and that. So it, it, it's been culinary anthropology. Adam and I had a really good conversation about it, which this whole uh, gastro obscura is, is yep. kind of yep. what it is. All right, Colin, thoughts or another rule? Sorry. I think that conversation was had over delivery margaritas in the hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny that it actually happened. The best, uh, the best conversations. There's really good Mexican food. The best conversations are held over delivery margaritas. <laughs> um, all right, Colin, over to you for either thoughts or another, another rule. Um, my, when I first got the notice that we were doing this discussion, my first thought was not for cooking, but rather for hunting and harvesting wild game and my kind of unspoken rule, um, I guess you could call it like etiquette was if you ask someone to help pack out meat, then they deserve some of the meat that you pack out. There's no telling, it's up to you how much you want to give them, um, and obviously, you know, you're not going to say like, well, I'll give you this meat if you help me pack out because then that would be violating like Lacey Act and stuff and like like selling wild game. Um, but if someone's going to help you pack out a half of an elk, then you should, there, there, I would say that you, it would be good etiquette to give them some. 
Um, I've done that every single time. I've given, I gave Justin some mule deer meat that I got. Uh, I gave Ben some elk meat that I got for helping me track down, hunt, and kill that elk last year. So yeah, I think that's kind of my uh, unspoken rule for hunting, which then of course goes into and everything too. If you follow Dr. Ben, uh, the outdoorsman, writer, educator, he posts elk stuff, elk meals all the time. Yeah. And it's my elk. Take that, Dr. Ben. It's Colin's elk. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's my elk. Never tags me in it. Anyway, no, I, I think what, that that's, that's, that's I, I think that's a pretty common common rule is that people gift meat for for whatever reason. Like I've heard of people gifting meat to those who have been involved in in the processing. I've heard of you know uh, just people just gifting meat. I think that's one of the great things about the wild food community is like a lot of folks just want to share, and so gifting becomes pretty available, especially like. If you're sharing some of that same uh, involvement in the procurement or transportation, and you're just like, "Hey, man, I really appreciate you. Here's some, here's some delicious, high quality wild food." I don't know. Well, I I believe yeah. it really comes mm-hmm. down to sharing culture. You know, you're sharing a, a, a an experience, a part of yourself, a story. And and I think on your podcast it was one I uh, first heard the term Denison diplomacy. Woo! Yep. Um, yep. Yep. And that's it's it's what it is. It's it's you know reaching people one one bite at a time. And it's not if they want to hunt, great. Uh, but the, the the very least these days they need to know what ethical legal hunting is that it mm-hmm. is used for food as a sustainable renewable resource and uh and just be supportive of it and the least we can do is share that delicious stuff with our neighbors and it, you know if if they want to get in there and work hard absolutely you know there's there's that i Love, I mean, we it, we have older kids. They eat, my growing daughter eats a lot, but you know the oldest one's away, so it's just the two of us now. We don't eat a lot, so we have a lot to give away. It makes me very happy that we can hunt to be able to share and turn on so many lights and see people walk out of here being like, "Wow, that was really that came from." I just drove off the bridge. Or not, not off. <laughs> I just drove over Whoa. the bridge. Whoa. Don't drive off on the way back. You're all right, Adam? This is so good. <laughs> Whoa. Drove over the bridge that that food just came from, and they're, they're, it's amazing. See those lights turn on. It's, it's, it makes me so happy in life, and it's what I really like to do. And, you know, educating those people that they may not hunt, like I said, but they're going to they're gonna hopefully tell somebody else about that experience and the more people that support it in the ballots and where it counts and with the funding, that's what we need. We need those people on our team. So it's a really easy way to do it. Everybody in the world has to eat. And the best way we can share stuff like that with each other is over a plate, you know. 
good way to break down a lot of walls with somebody and, and start that that communication. Ooh, let's process. do this. Let's talk about a bad. Let's talk about a bad rule. Any anybody throw throw one out there? Grinding your shanks. Throwing away or grinding your shanks. Overcooking meat. Or overcooking meat. Oh, we got two. Ooh. So, you know, Adam, I was just thinking about that. I have two pairs of shanks in my freezer that I need to take out. And that's going to probably going to be one of my last elk meals to make is my elk shanks. So why why do you why do you think it is? Let's, let's talk with why people. Why do we think it's involved as a as a grammatical culinary rule in wild game to grind shanks? Uh, grammatical, huh? I guess it wouldn't be a grammatical rule. Well, yeah, we're talking about wild game grammar. Grammatical. I don't know. Well, but sh- shanks wouldn't be a g- grammatical rule. It would just more be a culinary faux pas. There we go. All right. Yeah. So why? Why? Why is this evolved? Uh, I, I, oh. I just think hearsay. Adam Berkelman's got it. Yeah, and yield the floor to Senator Brickelman's. <laughs> I, I think anyone who's ever cooked a shank, uh, if they did go through and cook a shank um, and didn't do it properly, they had the chewiest piece of meat they've ever chewed on in their chewy lives. It's, it's impossible to eat. But all you have to do to a shank is, is slow cook it into submission, and then it's the most beautiful piece of meat you've ever ever tasted in your life. So, And all it takes is you know one, one guy or girl mm-hmm. being like, oh, I cooked that Raisin shank like that, Dutch and it was oven. inedible. Yeah, exactly, Dutch oven. They say, oh, that was inedible, and then they say, don't bother with those shanks, they're inedible. And then the next guy goes, hey, why aren't you cooking the shanks? It's like, oh, they're inedible. And then it just carries on and on and on and on until there's hundreds of people using that one person's judgment, but all it takes is someone knowledgeable breezing those things slowly, and then they're the best. And I think there's a lot of um, a lot of people out there now kind of preaching the, the truth to, to stop grinding those things down and stop throwing them out. And a lot of people just leave them in the field even. So, um, yeah, they just... It, it's, a, it's a mistake that needs to stop happening because it's, it's going to be one of your favorite cuts once you do it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a good quote. Uh, a lie makes its way around the world before the uh, truth has a chance to get its pants on. <laughs> and that's that's how they, these things work. It's somebody tells somebody that tells somebody, and and the truth is always out there. But it it, it seems that myths and other things get around a lot quicker, especially these days, the days of. Uh, you know, mass communication. So, yep. um, shanks are one of the best. And I ask everybody, do you want them? Do you not? And they're like, no. And if the people are asking for recipes, it's like, all right, you can, we'll get you dialed in. They never regret it. But inevitably, there's a garbage bag of them here every year that we get to just cook down and Ooh, go to enjoy. town on. All right, what was the other one? Somebody said another. Shanksgiving. Shanksgiving. <laughs> overcooking. I said overcooking. Let's hit that one. 
All right, overcooking means like just cooking, and that goes into one of that I had too, like low and slow, hot and fast, like heat and length. Like, um, why, why do people over believe that they have to overcook wild game? Well, because they heard it gets rid of that gamey flavor. I think that's it. I think people are, if, or they think it's. I think people are afraid that because it is wild yep. meat that there's some, like, cooties that exist in it. Um, you know. I don't know. I think uh, I think people are really afraid of blood um, coming out. And like you said, the cooties that could be involved in that. But Adam Steele, what, that's not blood. What is that? You know what it is? <laughs> Uh, blood coagulates, <clears throat> so that's going to be water and myosin, or water and myoglobin. Myosin is the, the protein that's extracted from the actual muscle tissue that b- binds sides. That was, that was another podcast. We're looking at <laughs> water and myoglobin, which makes it red. Yep. So it yep. looks like blood, but blood coagulates. Yep. So... Yeah, I, I think and it has that it has that irony, proteiny flavor, like blood, but it, it's it's not blood. I I think you're you're exactly right, and I think those are the three main points with that. All right, let's package it. Let's let's work towards the end here. What is a rule that we think people should adopt more closely in a wild food culture? I've got one. Adam's got one. Go ahead. I think um, people often cook things like they they think big time, you know, big cuts on the grill or on the smoker, you know, big steaks, uh, whole birds. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for breaking things down into smaller pieces and enjoying the what the the individual smaller cuts have to offer. You know, there's like the the Denver steak that we enjoyed on the the pig camp. Um, everyone, Adam butchered out a couple uh denver steaks and i cooked them up and er- no one could stop talking about them and th- it's just a smaller cut out of these kind of larger cuts and th- there's a time and place for these larger cuts and, and whole birds and, and you know big kind of barbecues and everything but um it's not the only way maybe it's time to try breaking down your birds d- trying different applications different heat levels different different preparations for for all these different types of cuts and and see where it takes you because uh i've been doing that a lot and i've uh discovered some amazing amazing flavors and textures that you'd never find if you just cook the whole thing agreed agreed i agree with that any other comments on that one yeah 100 percent agree with that yeah i mean that's i've over the past several years, definitely learned how to break down animals a completely different way and, and cutting, it, it, be, being able to have the recipe ahead of time and knowing what I want to do with it helps me cut the way I want to ahead of time. But like you said, smaller, I can really, really learn how to make the most out of it. The less hunting opportunities I get, the more... I'm happy I've learned how to use more and more and more and more things. 
um, just making stock and picking that that last little bit of meat off the bones and making something with that. It's it's really there's a lot of value there, um, and I think a big rule is just take your time. You know, take your time, think small, um, make it special. You know, don't just batter it or bread it and fry it. Think about how hard you worked for it. Think about how much you want to share with other people. Um, and just just think about everything, where it, everything we've talked about, and put it into something with a lot of intent. And, and then carry that tent, intent and memory back with you when you go into the woods the next time. Or when you go into the water the next time. It's going to going to help out a lot i think i agree with that i think so i would say that is a different thought though like me i've started uh keeping cuts whole and then processing them later so keeping them whole and putting them in the freezer then partially thawing and then break them down later because i'm at that spot where adam mentioned of like i don't always know what i want to do with something and if I put a blade to it and cut it down into portions, like I may regret and may want to change my mind later. So I've kind of created this system where I can wait. Meat glue exists. Do you want to use it? You, you can't ungrind. Like once Humpty Dumpty falls, you can't put them back together. So think that way. And like Justin said, it, like it's not that hard to take a whole hind quarter and wrap it really good and freeze it and just think about it. Take your mm-hmm. time. You have more time than you think when you're going through this whole process. Be, you know, just have the intent and really think about it. And it, it, I'm sure if, if you're if you're confused, you probably have someone you can call or there's internet resources. This is a great one, Harvesting Nature. Just take the time. Don't, don't feel rushed at any point in time in the process. And just give it that extra time and love that it deserves. And let it be gamey. <laughs> Um, what was I going to say? One last thing that I was going to say, uh, was aging and we'll, we'll wrap it up here cause we're running out of time, but aging, I wish more people would consider to age their meat, aging fish as well. I've talked about my experiences, aging trout and aging fish. Um, I'll loop that in with my last one of like treating fish as meat, not as like some separate thing. Like you can play by some of the same rules, but those two things, aging game, I think is hugely important when it comes to, we've already mentioned on here of like getting flavor where you want it, of getting tenderness and meat, of getting extra flavor where you want it. And then also too, like texture as well. Um, like, I think those are huge and I wish more people would think about that and think of ways in which they can age things um, because getting getting guts out, getting skin off, getting it cooled down, all that has needs to happen quickly. But once it's you start that cooling process, you can begin the aging process. Like you can pull cuts of meat out ahead of cooking and age it before you cook it. 
It, it's done in the domestic meat world all the time. Yeah, that's 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 definitely something I think is is underlooked, underutilized, but. Thankfully, with modern technology, it's one of those good rumors that's getting around. Yeah. And people are starting to, you know, wake up to, hey, we're going to get a, a refrigerator, got one for our beer. Maybe we should get one for our birds, or maybe we should get one to hang our deer in. We spend this much money on our license, this much money on our cat, you know, our guns, our ammo, everything, our camo, all this stuff. And, and, the end result should be a good meal. And why would you not have the gear and equipment and stuff to do it right at the last minute? Yep. Why skimp on that stuff? You know what? I mean, no, I and agree. it doesn't take much. So, all that, right. That's a big, huge myth. It does not take much to age game. <laughs> True. Cool. Keep it cool. Keep it dry. So, um, all right, let's let's float around the room here. Uh, around the room, we're not all in the same room. I wish we were; it'd be much funner. But uh, oh, I'll go to everybody for some much for funner, s- much funner. <laughs> that's that's great. That's that's grammatical. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of grammar, um, I'll go to Colin for your last thoughts. Um, it's kind of. Two thoughts combined into one. Uh, don't be afraid to branch out and experiment with different recipes, um, but also keep your old faithful in the back pocket. You know, salt and pepper and a quick sear is sometimes the way to go, but at the same time, um, check out the recipes that we have, that both Adams have, um, and don't be afraid to get a little creative with stuff. Um, you know, it, it's it's a balance that you have to strike whether you want to keep going creative or whether you want to stick with Old Faithful. There's nothing wrong with eating salt and pepper seared elk steaks for a whole year. Absolutely not. So, personal All preference. Right. All right, I'll kick it over yeah, to Adam Berkelman's last thoughts. Uh, just sticking with the theme, I'd say, like, another kind of unwritten rule is the, like, people making sure that wild game always remains in this kind of rustic Midwest or Southern or, or kind of French oriented cooking, always lots of, you know, heavy cream and, and heaviness and bacon and, and whatever I would say, like what Colin said, branch out and try something new, like try giving it a, an African preparation or an Asian preparation or, or South American, try, try adding some vibrancy to the meal or, or try making a salad with it or something. There's, there's all these cool things you can do, with with wild game that that kind of breaks away from the old ways of doing it, but don't give up those old ways because southern and French and, and Midwestern food is all it's all freaking awesome. So don't give up on it, but branch out every once in a while. Try something new. Try some colorful and tasty and spicy food. Wild game just just goes great with all of that. So yeah, try something new. Absolutely. All right, Adam Steele, over to you. Um, well, you know, I think going back to what Colin said, salt, pepper, and heat, you know, get a baseline with what you're working with. Know what you have. And then use good technique. You know, get some proper 
sears proper brazes know what those are how to use them and then like adam the great white north said <laughs> uh branch out learn something new you know there's a lot of different cultures out there and we all have a lot in common and and they all have kind of the same techniques the core techniques and and Use the ingredients you have around you with solid technique and and maybe add some different flavors or different cultural influence and, and start branching out and st- start really opening up. And um, I don't know. That, that That's about it. Start simple and use what you have and use that cultural influence to get you where you want to go. I will say this, that this is probably more the most culturally centric conversation we've ever had on this podcast. As far as like what is shaping wild food and game and fish. We we talked a lot about wild game here, but I think these are values that exist in our, our culinary culture as hunters and anglers and foragers. Like, it's good to recognize those traits and it's good to talk about them and it's good to talk about it in other cultural sense as well to, to understand, you know, maybe, maybe I want to try something different. Maybe I don't want to try something different. Maybe I'm doing things a way that I was taught, but it may or may not be, you know, in line with science or with, research or with other things like that maybe there's ways i could be doing it better you know what at the end of the day it comes down to what i always always go back to is like cook what makes you happy but i think a lot of what we do is to help you accentuate your wild game your fish your forageables to to be more enjoyable and for you to enjoy and and want to do it more like right we want to motivate you to get outside and and hunt and fish for food so i think therein lies that that's the root of this conversation is really like we're building the cultural or formulating formalizing the cultural identity of the the culinary hunter and angler right through this conversation i think it's really cool we touched we touched the tip of the iceberg i really think we could have gone way deeper we could have gone way longer i love talking about all this stuff so it's really easy just to continue in that conversation i know these guys are really passionate about it too but you know do do what makes you happy cook what makes you happy here's some sweet suggestions here's some food for thought uh with all of this but with that (laughs) thanks with that uh thanks everybody for listening as always, our show notes will be available uh, online. Just uh, scroll down and you can click the links to whatever we're referencing. The articles, the recipes, the the um, North American Grassland Conservation Act, all those things, we'll put them in there. Appreciate it. Uh, go get the magazine, buy some spice blends. Make sure you're following Adam Berkelmans over at the Intrepid Eater on all the social platforms. Once you're done there, make sure you're following Harvesting Nature on the same because so much cool stuff going on here uh, all the time. We're consistently trying to make things better. Uh, And then outside of that, whatever podcast platform you're listening to, please punch that five-star button. Leave us a review. Tell us what we're doing right. 
or, you know, tell us we're doing wrong. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night.